Buonasera! My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao! Come, follow me. Behind this 200 year old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima! Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze! Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search explore.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. Are you, like me, a spinster? Are you single, child-free and tired of the stigma attached to your situation in life? Are you actually having a bloody great time living your best life while all of your friends are tied up with their husbands and kids? If you think being a spinster is actually pretty awesome and you want to change the old-fashioned narrative, you want people to realize that not having a relationship or kids gives you the freedom to live a fabulous life all on your own terms. If this is you, then you've come to the right place. If, on the other hand, you're a spinster who isn't feeling quite so great about it, you've also come to the right place. Because I want you to feel great about it. I want you to know that your life is just as valid, valuable, and meaningful as anyone else's. If you're also interested in personal growth and working on yourself to become the best possible version of you, then you're in luck. Because we're also going to be talking about my other obsession, personal development and how we can use the extra time we've been gifted due to our lack of relationship in children and use that time to really become the people we want to be. I'm excited and I hope you are too. Join me every Tuesday for episodes with just me or me and one of my brilliant guests. My name is Lucy Megason. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to Spinsterhood Reimagined. Welcome back to Spinsterhood Reimagined. So my guest on today's episode is the fabulous Diane Connell. Diane was born and educated in New Zealand, but she has lived all over the world. She's lived in Japan, in France and in the UK, and she currently lives in Sydney. She began her writing career in a newspaper office in Tokyo before becoming an advertising copywriter and writing for the international non-profit sector. For many years, she lived in Paris, where she began writing as a novelist. And she later moved to London, where her first two books, Julian Corkle is a Filthy Liar and Sherry Cracker Gets Normal, were published under the name of DJ Connell. Diane's latest novel is called The Improbable Life of Ricky Bird and was published in May 2022. Diane is herself single and child-free and we talk about that among many other things and I really hope you guys are going to enjoy this episode. So without further ado, here is my fabulous guest, Diane Connell. 
Diane Connell. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining me and a very, very, very warm welcome to Spinsterhood Reimagined. Now, it's fabulous to have you here and you and I met on the wonderful Joe Goods BBC Radio London show because we're both regular contributors to that show and that's how we discovered that you and I are both single gals. But before we get into that, can you just give our listeners a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? My name is Diane Connell. I'm a novelist. I have written, I've published three books and uh, I used to live in London. I lived in London 11 years all up. I moved to Sydney five years ago. I live in Sydney now. So uh, Lucy here, you're looking at me in my Sydney home. It's four <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon. I know it's very early for you. So I've done a lot. I've done a lot of, I'm a bit of a nomad in my life. I was born in New Zealand, but I had a, a British father. So I always wanted to go to live in Britain. As, um, and But I also wanted to live in Asia. So I lived, I moved to Australia a couple of times. And then I went on this big odyssey, ended up in Japan for 12 years. Then I went to, from there, I and I, that's where I started my career first in um, a, a newspaper and then in um, so journalism and then to advertising, copywriting, but also working for a, a large international non-profit organization as a writer. And then I moved to... London for two years, then I went to Paris for nine years, and that's when I started writing books. And then I went to London again for another nine years, and now I've been here five years. So yes, that's me. I was published in Britain under DJ Connell, so it's a slightly different name. Okay. Now, we will definitely chat about your books, but I'm going to leave that a little bit later in the conversation. But let's just dive straight into this interview with the fact that you yourself, like me, are single and you don't have kids. That's right. So I want to ask you, first of all, about your thoughts around the word spinster, because obviously this podcast is called Spinsterhood Reimagined. And you and I are both officially spinsters, not that anyone really uses that term to describe people, but I deliberately used it for this podcast to kind of make a point. And, you know, as the title suggests, to try and reimagine this word that essentially only has negative connotations. What are your thoughts on that word? And then we'll get into your single life. I think the word does carry a lot of negative, it prompts negative responses from people. I think it has a negative connotation for another word, but it's great to reclaim these words. It's like the word crone. Actually, you're younger than me. I'm really a crone now because I'm older. I'm in, I'm actually 64. I know, I know I look younger, but I, <laughs> I'm just joking. No, but Ew. the thing is, But, you know, the crone is the wise woman. And so it's become, it's like the hag. People talk about the hag and the crone. Damn it. So what? Claim it. We've got the wisdom of our our age and our experience. And like you, I chose not to have children. But in terms of spinster, I'm kind of happy with crone, really, because even that that might even sound more negative to many people but go for it reclaim these words yeah um, in fact in fact it's a bit of a, it's a word that people don't use very often spinster it's, it's an really- unusual word yeah, it, it is an unusual word. And it's funny because I've I've actually I've asked myself why I chose to use it because the weird thing is I cannot remember the the moment when I decided to start a podcast. And in fact, I think it came from, I, I actually started writing a book, which is a whole a whole nother story, but I started writing a book before I started the podcast and I was going to, it's not going to be called that anymore, but I was going to call it Spinsterhood Rocks. But I can't remember 
why exactly I decided to go for that word or I can't rather I can't remember the moment I decided to use the word spinster but I remember feeling quite strongly that it just felt really sort of even though it's not a word that is used commonly and I would never describe myself you know I've never introduced myself as a spinster because you know I don't think very many people would but it was more that I wanted to make the point that because that word has pretty much only negative connotations, I wanted to say, you know, look at look at my life. And I am officially a spinster. I'm single and I don't have kids and I'm of a certain age. I mean, I'm not quite sure. Actually, I'd love to know what what age do you think? You know how we talk about a woman of a certain age? I mean, I'm 47, you're 64, like you've just said. I wonder what the age is, the kind of crossover where women are perceived as past a certain age there's a part of me that thinks it's after 40 what do you think about that I think it's tied in with fertility actually I think to be honest I think there's a certain once you get into your 40s you're less mm, you're less likely to have children so your your value in terms of um, a baby maker which has been historically what where our value lies it diminishes it's interesting in Japan when I lived there they used to have a word they used to have this expression Christmas cake because they believe that after 25 a, a woman is about as valuable as the Christmas as a Christmas cake after the 25th of December you know it's, it's that it was a sort of um it's an expression that probably got someone just probably said it and it caught on it was sort of joke but sort of not because you know as you probably know there's quite a lot of focus on very young women in Japan there's that whole there's the whole schoolgirl um, fetish as well so that's another sort of side dish. But yes, I think it's got to do with fertility. And I think inter- I think you start becoming a, a spinster if you're not married um, in your 40s, I would say. Yeah, My yeah, I would, I would, yeah. yeah. I, I would agree with that. L- I'd love to hear more about your time in Japan, because first of all, let me clarify, when you lived in Japan, were you single for the duration of that time? Um, no, I've had quite a busy love <laughs> life. I've had a lot of partners. And actually Japanese as well. And so on and off in Japan. I was single in Japan for a time. Um, and there's a lot of pressure there. And it's very difficult because I was um, a gaijin woman, a, a foreign woman. So first of all, I'm a woman, which means I didn't have as, it wasn't as easy for me. And then also I was a gaijin, a, a foreigner. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't really a happy hunting ground if I was looking for a partner. But I was really focused on my career, my career at the time and it was a very hard life, actually. Right. So I did have a partner. I had, um, I probably met the love of my life there. But with all my relationships, I start them. And then I have a bag packed, a suitcase packed psychologically, ready to kind of leave. Because really, I'm, a, I can, I'm not very good at staying in relationships. Right. After a while, I just get cabin fever. Terribly That's- so. Let's talk about this because I just find this fascinating. And and actually, I've wondered whether those of us who tend to be single, because I, like you, I've had many, many relationships over the years, but I wonder whether it does come down to a sort of um, a personality type or, you know, a a certain character who just finds that they are better when they're single. Because I know that... Don't get me wrong, I would know, and I've never, you know, I always say this on the podcast as in I don't assume that I will be single forever and I haven't, quote unquote, chosen to be single as in I haven't made a decision like I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. I happen to have been single for nearly, well, six and a half, nearly seven years. 
But that isn't to say that I don't assume at some point down the line I'll get into another relationship. But I find it so interesting what you said there, because do you think that there is just, well, you pretty much just said it, that there is something about you as a person that just tends more towards a single life. What are your thoughts on that? Do you know what I think? I think I think there are some of us, well, most people are tribal people, aren't they? They're the people who made settlements through history and they create, they had families, they had babies, they created agriculture, they had all this. And then there were the nomads, the people who moved around. And I know that's, we're talking about groups of people, but I think there are some of us like that. There are the people who really belong to the tribe. They feel happy in the tribe. They, they're very comfortable. And uh, I suppose, what would it be? Confident. They feel safe within the structure of family, of tribe, of community. And then there are those of us, Lucy, I don't know about you, but I, I, I love to go into the tribe. I like to be part of the tribe, but I like to leave the tribe. And I like my, I like, I'm a solitary person, really, although I've got you know, social skills. And I, 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 I love having periods of people, but they overwhelm me. People, if I have too much, too many people, it overwhelms me. And really, and I'm a writer, I need my solitude, I need to be alone. And I also have another idea. I think some of us also, okay, this for a want of a better word, in the artist community, the people who create, the creating, the people who make stuff, we need solitude. We need it. And I absolutely, it took me years to get to that point where I could say, this is what I do. This is important. I ring fence it. And I can't let anything get in the way of it because this is important to my life. And uh, yes, it means that I have sacrificed probably other things in life. Like I haven't had children. I haven't had, I haven't had the backup that are, you know, a relationship, a marriage, for example, you've always got the backup of somebody you've got that wonderful and companionship's a wonderful thing and I've always loved it in my relationships it's just the other stuff that I can't I just don't like to be boxed in I'm a freedom fanatic and and I'll do lots of things to make the other person comfortable and I'll do lots I'll I'll, I'll make a lot of compromises but I'll what I'll find in my relationships always is that the person I'm with will always want more and more and more and I'll I'll you know I'll in, in the end I'll be in a little corner trying to do my creative stuff because there's a part of me that shuts off. I have to do that. And it sounds pretentious, but I think there's truth to that. It, it doesn't sound pretentious to me at all. And, and and actually, I can completely relate to what you're saying. And you use the word solitude. And I find this a very, you know, I love that word because I think sometimes people misconstrue it because solitude is the kind of greatness of being alone, whereas loneliness is the, you know, the opposite of that, of being alone, the downside of being alone. But I, like you, am a freedom fanatic and freedom is, you know, it's my number one value. And and I do think that that plays a part in why I've, you know, I've left my last three or four long term relationships. I was the one to walk away because like you, I ended up feeling a bit like, oh, gosh. And, and actually another thing, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this. Have you ever found, because I've found in relationships that. Uh, you know how some people love being part of a couple. They love being, a, you know, a wife or a girlfriend. They love that identity. Yeah. And for some reason, I've always felt the the opposite of that. I've always felt that I didn't want to be 
lumped into you know Lucy and whoever or do, do you know what I mean it's it's yeah. I find that yeah. my autonomy is incredibly important to me and mm-hmm. I think there is an argument to say that there is a certain kind of autonomy that really you can only have when you're on your own even if you're in a relationship that you know allows both parties their freedom do you know what I mean when I say that yeah I, th- I think I think I've changed over the years because, of course, I think when I was younger, I didn't really know who I was and what worked for me. So I did have long term relationships and I loved my partners. And there's, you know, and I I probably did quite like the identity, you know, especially if I was with somebody who I don't know, was special. And I think most of my relationships have been special. But but then I was young and I was still finding my way. And in the end, I was always wanting out of those relationships anyway. So I think I've developed. I don't know how if I was clever when I, I didn't I didn't know my, I didn't know myself. I had to learn what what was right for me, and I had to learn that by making many mistakes, entering relationships, you know, other people having expectations of me, and me not being able to live up to them. The weird thing is, in a relationship, I'm very nurturing. I look after everything. It exhausts me though, and that's I have a problem with boundaries. They're very fluid. That's probably why I need to be live alone and be and be single because I can't say no I have a real problem with it and so in relationships they grind me down now I'm sounding terribly negative but it's the reality I mean people could say well you can learn to say no but it's my personality I have this you know I'm a mutable fluid person I'm not um I don't know I I I don't have military background so I don't I don't know how to I don't know how to I don't have those skills I suppose what I can do is I can sort of go it alone and find my way and ask little of others. I try to ask very little of people, like people. So moving, for example, to Australia, finding my way, and then I had this old house there and I renovated it. And I could have done with somebody trustworthy who could give me lots of help. It was a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. And, of course, I was a woman alone. And here in Australia, there's, um, what can I say, there's a culture, a male culture of in the trades community that is pretty... Mm, pretty hard, I have to say. And, and uh, so, yes, I had, I had, it was quite a difficult experience. Now, if I'd been in a partnership or if I'd been the type to say, please help me to somebody, it, it would have gone better. And you can, and yes, I could be criticized for that. Well, why didn't you? It's because I don't like to cause people trouble. I don't want to ask for things. I don't want people, I don't want to be a burden on people. And also I want my freedom. Um, so, it's a it's a mixture of all things. I, I I'm my the creator of my own problems. I think, but yes, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I've gone around and around here. Yeah. No, 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 absolutely. And and I mean, this is it's funny. This is the way these conversations tend to go. In fact, I mean, because I just realised that that I'd asked you about solitude, and then I'd completely gone off on a tangent myself. But <laughs> let's just go back to the concept of yeah. solitude, because mm-hmm. I think that. You know, I I love to talk about this because I know that a lot of my listeners don't feel good about being single and they don't necessarily embrace um, or enjoy solitude. You know, they they some of them see that more as loneliness. Now, can you just talk to me a bit about the wonders and the sort of amazing side of solitude as opposed to loneliness and being alone and why solitude can be such a kind of nourishing um an amazing thing okay solitude it's it's interesting because i do choose solitude but i've gone through great period long periods in my life 
where I've encountered loneliness, but that's the price I've paid for wanting solitude. Now, they are very different. I think solitude is a positive state. It's a state I choose. It's a state that I use, and I absolutely need to be able to write. I need to have my my little life without judgment or other people's structures, without anything that diminishes, the th- because I hold it dear. I need it. And um, I come, weirdly, I say, I come from a big family. So uh, when I'm back there, I find it kind of overwhelming because you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff goes on in, in when there's a lot of people together. And But I need to be able to withdraw and I need to be able to assemble my thoughts, my feelings, myself, really. And that's what solitude does. And solitude also allows me, for example, to stay up late at night and then to lie in bed making notes or reading a book. Now, if I was in a partnership or if I was had obligations with the family or whatever, I wouldn't be able to do that. But that's nourishing and it's important and it's work. It's part of my work, you know. So other people might look at what I do in my solitude and think of it as a sort of doing nothing or being lazy. But that's part of the creative process or lifestyle of someone who chooses an artistic lifestyle. You absolutely have to have time to daydream and to play and to experiment. Otherwise, we'll all be writing and creating the same formulaic stuff. Um, Now, loneliness, though. Loneliness is a a sort of negative sort of state. But I think it's, it's important, though, because loneliness, through loneliness, you learn your strength, you learn courage, you learn, you learn to battle on as long as as long as loneliness doesn't become a driver for depression and self-hatred and all that stuff when you swirl on emotions and go down the gurgler, you know, the self that that stuff is, is not or you become bitter or you, you know, or you sit at your keyboard and you write on Twitter terrible things about people. That's kind of loneliness. So I think they're very different states. I think loneliness has taught me a lot. It's taught me my strengths because, you know, uh, Lucy, I've gone to countries where I don't know anyone. I have very little money at times. I, I have had at times and I had to find my way and I've had to do it myself. And I don't want to sound like I've got a big head, but I learned that I could do it and that I'm not, I've learned not to be fearful of the new, of compromise. I think it, it, it's 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 given me a sort of a certain tolerance of other people and other people. It's you know I think hmm, it's that stuff. So yes, loneliness is, is is a very difficult state, but it can be beneficial. And I've yeah. had to I've had to do it. every time I've moved to a different country, I've, I've had to you know deal with it. Yeah. But at the same time, I know that's the price I pay for wanting solitude or needing solitude. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Thank you for that. Can I ask in your life how two things, how has loneliness manifested for you? And the second question off the back of that, how have you dealt with it? Um perhaps I should before I answer that, I should say that I came from a big family, but we my father was an immigrant. We were a very can-do family. So I came from a place of strength. I had a base where I was brought up to believe or to think that I have to sort myself out, support myself, find my way myself. So in a way, I wasn't given everything as a child, or I wasn't, I wasn't mollycoddled. So there was this, always this, I I had this idea that I had to find my way and I couldn't. And here's a wonderful thing that a gift I had from my parents. I've never been allowed to blame other people for my situation. I take responsibility 
for the situation I'm in. So I don't go, my father used to say, you owe the world, the world doesn't owe you. And it's pretty hard. And, it, and sometimes that that sort of philosophy has been used against me because I think some people have taken the mickey. But it means that. So how do I deal with loneliness? Is that what the question was? Yeah, yeah. So I've got this base behind me or under me, a net um, and a self-belief there somewhere. But what, how, when loneliness is toxic, it's a sense of being, it's, it's almost like a yearning or an ache for connection and for and the sense that the world's going to the dogs, that everything I do turns to rubbish. I, I mean, I, what I do is I turn in on myself in a period of, say, toxic loneliness when when I just, I've got too much responsibility and very, very, and I can see no way out, kind of. That's how the loneliness kind of manifests. So I think that's how it happens. And how do I get out of it? I do stuff. I have a kind of, I, and I give myself a hope. Like, fortunately, because I write books, I have projects and I start thinking and I, I go into those worlds and they help me. They help it. Reading really helps. Reading is a fantastic enterprise. That's great. You read, you get put into somebody else's life and it's not passive like watching videos or something. It's you are creating. You're the one, your mind is the one that throws up those images that knows what John looks like and Sue looks like and what they're wearing. You, you're the one that creates that. So it's a very active thing. So you you actually are involved in a creative process when you read. And when you write, it's a similar thing. So I think that's, that helps me. I, think. I, I love that answer. Thank you for that because I totally relate to it because one of the things that I've talked about quite frequently on this podcast is how I really feel that not only does being single or not having kids give us the chance and give us the opportunity to really throw ourselves into into projects and things that we're passionate about. But also, I think it's really important to have something that you are focused on. And I know that in, in probably part of the reason why I don't, well, I'm sure, not probably, I'm sure that part of the reason why I don't suffer from feelings of loneliness at this point in my life and I will say I have absolutely suffered from loneliness in the past definitely Mm. Mm. Um, but let's not forget that loneliness can be something that people experience within or not within a relationship but Mm. I think that a large part of why I'm not lonely right here right now is because I'm so focused on the things in my life that I'm doing and creating that it really when you know when your mind and when your focus is on something that you're passionate about like you say when you you know you're literally thinking about the thing mm. that you're working on in your case a book in my case you know maybe the podcast i mean i spend so much of my time thinking you know okay my god i've got to get a guest and i've got to do editing and then i'm thinking about ideas for the mini sode and i'm you know constantly thinking of ideas 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 which i love and actually, one thing about um, having a podcast is that it's given me this sort of creative outlet, which I absolutely love. But I do think that that's that's one of the greatest things about being single is that sort of time and opportunity and space to be able to throw yourself into those projects. And I've said on the podcast before that you know, one of the ways of combating loneliness is to find something that you love, to find something that lights you up. Because I totally get that feeling where you're, when you're feeling really lonely and you're feeling really shit in yourself. 
I've 100% been there more than once in my life, as I'm sure you have to, as I'm sure you have too. But we do have a choice as to where we place our focus and how we spend our time and what we choose to do with ourselves. And I think it can feel easier sometimes to lean into feeling crap because I think human beings, you know, I think we almost, we're so addicted to feeling bad in some ways that it feels harder to lean into the thing that's going to make us feel better, but we have to make a choice. And certainly when it comes to loneliness, I think having those outlets really does make a big difference to how how you feel and, and it can combat those feelings, right? And, and and also I think there's something about, I remember a partner once told me that peop, a lot of people don't know how to handle freedom. So they're happier within structure and that might be structure of relationship or a job, a nine to five job, because being a freelancer is not for everyone, for example. I think doing what I do, which is just, I just threw myself into writing books and decided I was going to, I was going to, that was going to be a lifestyle. And not everybody can do that because it's, it's, it's high risk and not everybody can take risks. That's absolutely not a judgment because I mean, I haven't had children and this part of me thinks, you know, this part of me thinks might've liked a child. I'm like, I'd like that, that I'd like to have been able to teach and to, to nurture and to, and to share but then this, it would have been far too hard. I wouldn't have been able to deal with it. It would have been very hard for me. And um, I, I wouldn't want to have that impose my hardship on, on, on a child, really. I was going to think, I was going to say something. It was very interesting. You, you know, I grew up because my mum was, she was born in the 30s. So she grew up with a lot of expressions like women, couples or people who don't have children are selfish. I, I, it was of that era. And, you know, I had to wade through all that stuff to get to where I am. So I had to wade through all those things. And now they don't mean anything to me. But at the time, I was always, there was always judgment, judgment, judgment. And I think um, a lot of young women would feel that terrible judgment of not having a partner or not having a child. It is, there is that judgment. It, It takes a lot of sort of finding yourself that it takes a lot to get rid of that if you are a sensitive person. And if you do want a child and get married, then it's terrible. It's terrible judgment. But I've often thought, actually, the people who don't get married, the people who don't embrace those those structures that are already created for us, that structure of family and, and all that stuff, and don't have children, they're the people who, why are they selfish? They usually pay higher taxes because they're not they don't, they don't have the children to, to um, as a tax break and all the rest of it. They're the ones that are always available. You know, a married couple will say, "Look, I can't this week because Fred is Fred is going to something something, and she can't because he can't, and she can't because because of the children. Children are always and they and they, they do and should take precedence." But it means that the single people will always be the person that, I mean, over the years, how many friends did I help move house? I mean, you tell me. And all those things, because we're available, because we we don't have children. We don't have a husband. So we are the people who tend to be the ones on the ground doing stuff for others because we we have the time or, or it's perceived. It's a, there's a perception that we have the time and the energy. Yeah, completely. I mean, I have to say that the whole concept of people who don't have kids being selfish is something that that frankly uh, frustrates me to 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 put it mildly. 
Um, one thing I just want to pick up on that you said just now um, about how you've had to sort of wade through the judgments. Let's mm-hmm. talk a bit about the stigma around being single and the stigma around not having kids. Um, I mean, obviously, as you said, you've had lots of relationships over the years, as have I. But during your periods of being single or perhaps kind of later on in your life when you realised the, the road that you were going down, i.e. being single, not having kids, when you talked about having to wade through those judgments, can you just speak to that a little bit more and, and you know, tell me what did you experience and, you know, who who from? As a young woman, and I, I really do think there's a, I think a lot of this stuff is has got a lot to do with fertility and perception of attractiveness. So if you are not, when you're young, you also have a physical yearning to be with, with to have partners, to have partners, to have sexual relationships, romantic, emotional, you name it. Much more, as you get older, you, you don't have as much. And it's almost like a freedom when you don't have that. It's almost like you don't have to seek out a partner or you don't have to, or even, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible relief in a way. So when you're young and I know young women, they, they really want that relationship. And there's, there's the physical yearning and the physical wanting the comfort and emotional support and all the rest of it. And then there is the structure and that's where the judgment comes in. This, this, all these expectations of society, of family, of whatever. And I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely very, very difficult for women who come from more traditional families where there's not just expectations, there's demands. You, you have to get married, you know, and you have to marry someone that's of a certain um, class or education. In Japan, it used to be like that, for example. I know in, my Indian friends have that kind of pressure as well. So, um, yes, there's a lot of judgment. You're, I, think, I think the judgment is the clock is ticking and you better hurry up and you better use while you've got your beauty and your, your fertility because I do think that's a big factor. Um, you've got to do something. So women who aren't doing that, it's very hard for them. So what would I say to them? How would I speak? I'd say to them, ask yourself whether you really want a partner or are you feeling the pressure of others to have a partner? Because really, as you get older, you realize, I mean, I have absolutely no shame in saying I'm single. I, I, I choose this lifestyle. And you don't have to. You don't have to be one thing about it. You don't have to be in a partnership to prove your worth, whether it's um, you, you don't. And I think that's very difficult for young women, yeah. especially now with social media. It's so much about that. And reality TV, we've got married at first sight. You've got all this rubbish that's on about women wanting to get married. It's it's gone. It's almost gone back because in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we were permitted to seek freedom and to be single and to celebrate it. But despite all those, you know, judgments and things. But now it's sort of gone back, hasn't it? Do you feel that? Do you feel like people have become conservative again? The blinds are coming down? You know, funnily enough, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask your opinion on this, actually. And I was going to ask whether you felt that during the course of your sort of adulthood, whether you have seen a shift in the perspective, in the perception around single women. So it's it's really interesting that you say that. But and actually, my answer to that is, uh, actually, I, I haven't felt that. But I think that is partly to do with the fact that I'm doing this podcast. So I spend a lot of time having these conversations and 
I spend a lot of time, you know, getting messages from listeners. So, so I suppose what I'm trying to say is that because I know that there are so many single child-free women out there and there is a much bigger conversation around, you know, both being single and not having kids. So in my, the lens of life that I'm currently looking through at this point in my life, I think I actually feel this sort of um, optimism that we're actually getting somewhere. But having said that, <laughs> well, no, it's interesting to hear what you say, though, because having having said that, I do absolutely still feel like fundamentally, you know, we've got, you know, it's, it, there isn't going to be the shift that I would hope for eventually in my lifetime. There's just no way that it's going to happen in my lifetime because it's so ingrained in you know the fabric of society that the thing the normal life path is to get married and have kids that there's no way that that's going to become the norm you know as I say in my lifetime but I'm going to a bit more what you're what you're saying about I I know what you're saying about um social media and reality tv and all of that because because I think what that shows us is that there is there is still the same expectation as there ever was, right? Yes. Hey, and I've just thought of something. You yeah. know how I was talking about my mother's expression about how single people are selfish? Yeah. Well, I've absolutely got a counter-argument to that. Bringing children into this world, more children, I mean, it's an old argument, more children and more people into this already highly populated world where we've got global warming, where we've got where you've got opportunities to adopt a child from somewhere, could be considered selfish. Actually, I don't think that. I just think because I, I think everybody can do what they want. But if people, if if women do feel selfish, if, if they're getting labeled selfish for not choosing marriage and children, then there's absolutely a very valid argument to say, why is it so important to have children when the world has 8 billion people already and we are bulging and we are destroying this planet? Uh, why is it? Why is it? Why is it a badge of honor to have a child and get married? Why is that? Exactly. Um, so- I, I couldn't agree more. I, I really couldn't agree more. And in fact, I had um, two women on this podcast a few months ago from an organization called population balance. And we were talking about this exact thing and how, you know, really the, we are in serious trouble in terms of the environment and the fact that, you know, we crossed over to 8 billion. I think it was in November last year and how it is such a big, big deal. The fact that people continue to have multiple kids, but I, I wonder, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, whether, sometimes that sort of um, angle of, oh, well, you're selfish if you're not having kids. How much of it do you think perhaps comes from people's almost, I don't want to use the word envy, but I can't think of a better word. But I do wonder whether, because I think so many people end up getting married and having kids, not because they've actually sat down and asked themselves whether it's what they really want, but because it's what is expected. And it's like, well, of course I'm going to do that because that's what people do. So I wonder whether there is an element of that when, you know, the likes of you and I sort of you know, I guess it can be triggering for people in marriages with kids. It can be triggering to see single women out there kind of living lives of freedom and excitement and, you know, doing interesting things. And certainly from off the back of this podcast, I've met lots of women women who are doing really great things with their life and who are living really interesting lives. So I wonder whether 
some of the kind of, oh, you're so selfish for not having kids, whether some of it does actually come from the fact that perhaps we slightly trigger people because perhaps there are people out there who've just gone down the marriage and kids route without really thinking about it. You know, two things about that. I agree that there are, there's, let's just call it jealousy. There's definitely jealousy. And I've certainly, I've definitely met that at times because from the outside, it might look like I've had a fabulous life. I've lived in Paris. I've lived in London. I've lived in Tokyo. Now I live in Sydney, all these big, beautiful cities. But actually the reality of when you live in these cities, you you still have a small life inside your flat and you have your little things and you have that and you have your routines. It's like living anywhere. But of course it's perceived the single woman having freedom and that somehow I know for a fact it's made other people feel I'm judging them or something or that somehow I am, that my life is, I consider my life better than theirs. It's not better or worse and it's just the life that suits me. And that's, but I know that, and I've, I have had a couple of problems with absolutely with jealousy about this. But also another thing about people, about this whole thing of you're selfish if you do, if you're single and you don't have children. Isn't it also because people just accept kind of expressions and things and they don't really think about it because they're just not very imaginative. They just, oh, well, yes. And that sort of suits their lifestyle. So that's it. sort of it back, as long as something backs up, people are very much focused on their lives and what's important. They don't really, not, not everybody has a global view about life. They have a very small, most people live, I mean, I live a small life too, but, you know, most people will live a small life, a safe life. A couple with children is a sort of, there's a safety in that because you're doing everything right in the eyes of society. You're doing you're doing what's expected. You're not ruffling the feathers of other people. People like me and like you, we don't do the right thing. We're not doing what's expected. So there's going to be always for the people who don't want to have to think about it, who don't want to have to consider that other lifestyles are possible or even good, and they fear that someone who's got freedom of, to choose and live a single lifestyle somehow threatens the, the goodness of their lifestyle or how right their lifestyle is, then, yes, it will trigger them. And I think some often people just aren't imaginative, and they don't have to be because they're safe. They're in a couple. They don't have to think their way out of it. I mean they watch tv and it's not look less not a judgment but I, I do think there's just a lack of imagination in a lot of people and then yes there's jealousy yeah I love what you said there it's very interesting and I agree completely and I also think it's to do with with choosing authenticity and ironically in order for us to really live our truly authentic lives and be our truly authentic selves the sacrifice ironically, of being yourself is that you're going against the grain because most people are perhaps not living in their true authenticity because our kind of base human instinct is to belong. And by choosing a life that is different, that is not the norm, that is not traditional, that is not the thing that everybody expects and every, you know, quote unquote, everybody does, that risks your kind of sense of belonging because it means that you know you might be rejected you might be and, and and ultimately sort of you know back in the days it it would mean that you might die if you were you know if you chose to not go That's along right. with it and if you didn't belong to a tribe so i think well, it which really does 
Yeah, sorry, well, you get burned. <laughs> yeah, well, funnily enough, the whole witch thing, I find this absolutely fascinating because witches, when you when you think about it and when you sort of look into this, witches were were often actually single women who were kind of really bright and doing something oh. successful. Exactly. Mm. And, and I... Yes. And this just makes me think about, you know, the patriarchy. This is so weird. My screen has just completely flipped and you suddenly flipped. This happened the other day with, with on another interview because <laughs> I've, been, I've, I've been looking at you on my left and suddenly the screen just flipped and you've gone right and I've gone left. That's so weird. Anyway, so I suddenly was like talk, looking at witches. myself. So strange. <laughs> Um, but yes, back to witches. Um, isn't that interesting? And it makes me think about something, um, you know, a much, much bigger thing, the, the patriarchy and how anything that threatens that yeah. Is, yeah. It, is a big problem because it's, you know, it's almost like keep them down because I think people know how powerful single women who are not tied, tied down, quote unquote, tied down by marriage and kids People can see how that threatens the status quo. And that we is don't scary. We don't need men. So it threatens men, but it also threatens women who are with men. So it's a threat. It's a threat. So I think, yes. And so I think witches were definitely um, those those women who were perceived to be either single, attractive, or they had some sort of power. They had whatever they had, and or they offend somebody. And then, you know, it all tips and turns against them but fortunately we don't live in that society anymore but hey I was thinking also just as we're talking about this so I think as a single person talking about selfish or not selfish I think because I've had to weather a lot of stuff on my own through my life I think it's given me a much more global perspective a much more I think for example my politics I would vote to support the many not the few I don't, because I don't have, I'm not part of a nuclear family, uh, my vote, well, obviously I'm going to vote Labour and whatever, I vote for, for institutions that support people, society as a whole. I'm not voting to make sure that I get a discount on my car and my business and my, you know, my family. I'm going to vote for, I just think my view of life is yeah. perhaps I'm going for the many, not the few. And that is part of what's happened in my life because I've developed a sort of my world perspective is really more, I think it's more global because I haven't had the, the safety of a structure which gives me all those viewpoints with it or the permission to be selfish. I haven't had that. It's, I don't have the permission to be selfish because I'm alone. So I have to, I have to look at the world in a, in a different way than, say, somebody in a couple. Completely. And it, it, it makes it makes complete sense. And the analogy that I was going to use is that it's it's like you have to widen the aperture on your on the lens that you're looking through life with. You know, you have to and I complete I love what you said. I think I I and no one's no one I, I haven't had a conversation where anyone's actually said that point, and I really love that because it's actually really true. When you're part of a kind of a nuclear family and you're sort of following that that life path it allows you to be slightly narrower in in what you're looking at and the lens that yeah. you're looking through. Whereas, Absolutely. as you say, when you're on your own, there is a requirement to to be a bit more, dare I say, open-minded about 
life in the world because you kind of have to because you're kind of like say you're on your own so you're having to find things out or look at things in a different way you don't have the safety of structure and of partnership and of family and of a sort of status you don't have it you are very much this agent that's going through the world so you better be tolerant you better understand the world in a, in a different way. You better be open to the world in a, in a different way and you better be ready to give globally because, because you don't have the safety net of that structure and of a partner. And you don't have a man who's going to punch somebody up to, to save you or something. You don't. You have to sort yourself out, don't you? Unfortunately, being alone as a woman does entail a certain... Sometimes you find yourself... your you, if you're too strong, if you're a woman on your own and you're too direct and strong with men, you'll get kickback and they'll be horrible if you need to, if you have to work with them. I'm, I'm thinking of tradespeople. And if you're, because that's the easy, it's easy for me to think like that. But if you are too sweet and soft, they'll walk all over you. So it's, it's a funny thing. You make, you learn a lot about what not to do and what to do. Do you know what that's just made me think of as well yeah. is that, that thing of where if you're a woman who is who knows her own mind I was thinking about this literally um yesterday and I can't remember what the context was but it came to me and I and and I was just like oh my gosh oh I know what it was I know what it was I'm so glad I remembered this because I'd love to hear (laughs) think about this but I have been described in my life quite a few times as feisty and I've realized why that is and it's and it's this it's a similar thing at, to where a woman gets called bossy where a, where a bloke gets called assertive or a woman gets called angry whereas uh you know a guy it wouldn't necessarily be perceived be perceived as angry so what i'm trying to say is i think that i've been called feisty because i've always known my own mind and because i've always spoken my truth and said what I think rather than kind of and and you know I was going to say rather than be a people pleaser and I've absolutely been a people pleaser because I think that's such a female thing but I suppose I've erred on the side of being one of those those women who has been a bit more yeah feisty but I realized and I can't remember again like I say I can't remember the context of why I was thinking about this yesterday but I just suddenly thought I used to I used to take it as quite a compliment to be called a feisty girl. And as I say, it's something that's definitely been used to describe me multiple times in my life. But actually, I think it's kind of a backhanded compliment almost, because I think it's kind of saying that you're too much. You, you know, you just need to be a bit quieter, you know, like you're, you're a woman who's just a bit too loud or a bit too bossy or a bit too opinionated. And it's so classic in as much as... Isn't the word uppity? Uppity. You're uppity. It's like it's yeah. like in America, black people get called uppity if they have an opinion. You're yeah. uppity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and but actually what it comes down to is that people or society just doesn't like women who say what they fucking mean. Because women are supposed to be sweet and kind and nice and people pleasing. And as soon as they have an opinion or as soon as they are speaking their mind, then it's kind of sort of you know, people try and suppress it because, again, it's going back to that thing of powerful women, how there's a danger in that. And it's because it's threatening the way that the world works and it's threatening the patriarchy, you know? It's it's not just about 
a woman being um, opinionated or, or saying, stating her mind, it's also about a woman knowing what she wants and not needing a man. Yes. And that threatens women as well. That threatens women as well. It threatens men and women. It threatens yes. women who who are who embrace the sort of the more status the status quo. It threatens them a lot um, yeah. because then you'll find. Unfortunately, like, I really do believe in sisterhood, and it always breaks my heart when it's a woman that stabs me in the back. <laughs> it's just I find it really heartbreaking because I think we're all in it together. And whereas I don't think of men as the enemy at all, but you know. Women aren't the enemy, is what I want to say. Um, and I think, yes, I think the thing is, when you don't need men, you are an enigma and you're a problem. You're possibly a problem and you're a threat. You're all those things. And um, yes, and so they're going to try to crush you somehow. Um, yeah. I haven't caught, I don't know about being a people pleaser. I think it's part of being a woman that we appease it's our nature to appease because we are physically not as strong as men. I mean, through through history, through this, um, men have been the ones. I mean, men can hurt us physically easily. So we've learned to appease. In fact, um, I remember, and it's not always a bad thing, because I remember a woman telling me once how she was somewhere and um, a stranger tried to rape her. She was in a terrible situation. And this man was almost, he was going to really hurt her. And she went into the appease mode and asked his name and started appeasing and being, I mean, obviously being very, being very warm towards him. The opposite, like a, like a mothering. She was actually a, a psychotherapist by by training, but this was her just her survival instinct, and it worked. It worked. He started crying, and she got out of it. In fact, I've had very similar experiences where where I've been under threat and not fighting. And being the opposite has worked in my favor. I mean, I think intu intuitively, many of us know. I, I mean, I've been I've been a woman traveling around the world on my own for a long time. So naturally, I've encountered I've been in very difficult situations, and um, I've encountered you know very difficult men and very difficult situations. So yes, I don't think I don't think it's necessarily being a people pleaser. There's something being able to appease being able to get someone to lower to drop their their weapons yeah and to and to leave us in peace is absolutely part of our nature and i think it should be because no matter what happens in our society how women get more more votes than men or whatever they get more power men are always going to be physically stronger yeah they're always and they can always hurt us that's so interesting what you said well about both yourself and but particularly what you said about your friend because that's that's just almost kind of made me feel quite speechless because which which is unusual um but the reason I say that is because isn't that interesting that by her kind of tapping into another side of him he started crying because ultimately any man that is trying to rape a woman has got issues going on in himself and has and yeah. is not happy within himself. And so I just find that so, so interesting that his reaction to her appeasing him rather than fighting him and trying to get away from the situation by defending herself, that he then started crying. I just find that absolutely fascinating because, because obviously anyone who is trying to harm someone or in that kind of situation, you know, in that kind of context, there is clearly so much going on within them and I'm not 
I'm not excusing what men do, you know, at all, of course, but I'm just saying that ultimately anybody who behaves in that kind of deviant way has clearly got trauma and wounds that they haven't healed, which is why they are feeling to behave in the way that they're behaving. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't, I, and I don't think it works with everybody because I think a psychopath is going to hurt you anywhere, any which way. But I just think when when we put ourselves down for being people pleasers, actually, it is part of our, absolutely part of our biology, and it is one of the tools we have and we need because there are men who are going to try to hurt us. There, there are, and. I mean, even as a child, you knew your, your brother's friend. The one that got you and twisted your arm up the back was there was something. There was something going on there, you know, that he'd do that secretly to the you to hurt you, and the other boys wouldn't notice, sort of thing. I mean, I had that because I grew up in a big family, so we were always fighting. But there was, I don't think that will work with all psychopaths. It won't. A lot of men are very, very violent and, and trouble. I don't know why we've got onto this, but I've brought us there. Sorry, but I no. do think. There are, I, I have, once I was hitchhiking by myself, I was only 18, I was ridiculous, I did all ridiculous things in New Zealand, and I, this man took me to this lonely road, and then he sort of got me out of the car, because what do you do, do you say no or what, or yes, and then he tried to take my trousers off, tried to pull my top off, and then he was going to take my phone, I said, and something in me kicked in, and I was absolutely the appeaser. I was absolutely very gentle and I just, because it wasn't anything thought out, it was some sort of survival thing and I just said I need to get back to the car and somehow I appealed to something human in him. He was a man about 50 and it was a very, very dangerous situation and I was a numbskull but I was 18, you know, I was a fool and I somehow got him back into the car and he was all red and sweating and he was about to be very violent and then he started apologising. Oh my and gosh. then he took me to, I think it was a youth hostel or something. I had to go and stay. And, but I mean, I was absolutely traumatized by it and I kept dreaming about it. And I felt so guilty. I felt terrible. It was my fault, my fault, my fault. Um, which is what victims often feel, but nothing happened to me. Um, and actually the reason it didn't happen, because in those days you used to get Levi jeans and the, the zip would always break. But, and so we used to put a safety pin to hold the zip up. So he tried to pull my trousers off and get couldn't get them down because there was a safety pin. But yes, but I've had other experiences like this. So yes, there's something about there's something about if, I mean being an appeaser, going limp is not always going to help you and probably wouldn't help you most times. But certainly I had that experience, and that woman I knew from um, she had that ex- similar experience. So at times, being an appeaser, being a woman who allows the man to feel forgiven for whatever they're going to do or try to do and gives them an out. So it's almost like giving someone a psychological out. It works sometimes, but I wouldn't, I, I don't recommend it. I mean, it was absolutely instinct on my part. And also that woman, but that woman also was a trained psychotherapist, but it was very traumatic for her. Um, it was a younger guy who was doing it. So probably she was old, you know, older than him. I think she was in her thirties. He would have been probably 20 something like that gosh wow I mean I I, those two stories I mean your story of that is just how utterly utterly terrifying but also how fascinating that again you like the story of the other woman that you're talking about how by you appealing to that human side of him he ended up Apologizing, I just think, I mean, and this is a whole nother Christ. This is a whole nother conversation for a whole nother podcast, but I do find that absolutely fascinating. Now, 
Diane, we, yeah. we've been going, we've mm-hmm. been going for an hour and I'm very yeah. aware that I'm taking up your time. So, but what I, what I really would love you to talk about um, now is, is your books. Tell us, okay. so tell us about your most recent book, The Improbable Life of Ricky Bird. Okay, fantastic. I should, I should just say about that man that apologised. Yeah. I know that he apologised because he was fit. The power balance turned and I was the person that could denounce him and take him to the cops. So right. that's why he was apologising, not because he was sorry, I don't think. Oh, but okay. I, did, I did absolutely appeal to his um, something in him, some, something human in him that stopped him doing what he wanted to do. But I think the apology was more about saving his bacon at the time because he I knew see. he'd done wrong. Now, about my book, oh, yes, the, the Improbable Life of Ricky Bird. It's published in Australia at the moment, but you can get it in Britain as an e-book or as a, an audio book. Um, but my other two books should be available. They're under DJ Connell, and it's the um, Julian Corkle is a Filthy Liar and Sherry Cracker Gets Normal. And, uh, yeah. But my latest book was published last year. So, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the latest book. Um, it's about a young, well, you've probably got this under, <laughs> you probably know by now that I love human relationship and uh, uh, the way that people, all the murky stuff that happens, um, what goes on below and what, what, what we see and what we don't see. And so this is a young, a young she's um, an adolescent and she gets into trouble and she's vulnerable and she's left on her own on an estate in London and she's very vulnerable. And then because she's young, she doesn't have a voice. So when things start going wrong and things happen to her, people aren't going to believe her because because um, when you are the problem, nobody wants to listen to you. you know, you're considered. So she is um, silenced. and But she's a very interesting character and clever and talented. So it's funny, sad, hopeful. And it's the best book I've written, I think. Well, it's funny you say that because I was just going to ask you if you have a favourite of your books. Well, my first book, you know, when when you write a first book is is a very funny book. It's been, um, uh, what do you call it, option for a film. It's a, it's a very, very, very funny book. And people love it. And it became a kind of cult classic, especially with all my gay friends because the main character is gay. So there's a lot of my early self, that ridiculous, taking lots of, I took lots of risks with it and it's very funny. But this one I just wrote, I think is more, it's, it's, it's a more, it crosses, it's more, it's, it's somewhere between commercial and literary. So it's, um, it's a more thoughtful book. It's more, yeah, I suppose more thoughtful, but also kind of, she's funny, my main character. So. Just, can you just tell the listeners the the full titles of those books again, just in case they want to go and buy any of them or any or all of them? Okay. The new book is uh, The Improbable Life of Ricky Bird by Diane Connell. The other two are Julian Corkle is a Filthy Liar by DJ Connell and Sherry Cracker Gets Normal by DJ Connell. Sorry, I forget my own books. I forget what happens in them. Brilliant. And and just to clarify, so the, the most recent one you've written as Diane Connell, but the two your first two books, you your pen name was D well, not pen name, but your DJ name. DJ Connell, yeah. DJ Connell, yeah, just in case anyone gets confused. Now, very briefly mm-hmm. before we wrap up, I always ask this question, or mainly I or I normally ask this question for any of those women out there who are not enjoying their single lives. 
Do you have any words of wisdom about the kind of the best things about being single? Freedom, creativity, discipline on your terms. So I do yoga so I can, you know, that's something I like to do. This The sense of this global view you can develop. So although we're single, we reach out to the world in a much more, in a, in a, I think in a more generous way. Fun, have fun. You don't have to do anything. The whole idea of if you're single, you can let all those expectations that other people impose on you, those judgments and expectations, those boxes they put you in, you can let it go. Make your life, your single life, the center of your power. Make it your power base. You choose it. Because anybody can find a partner on Tinder, can't they? They really could. You could find, but you don't. You don't have to. If you, if you haven't got somebody and you haven't met somebody on Tinder, it's because you don't like them. It's not because, because I'm sorry, there'll be people that would still love me and love you, but we choose not to. So yeah. we've made that choice, don't we? So embrace it and uh, take not take pride, because I don't know about pride. Pride's a funny one, isn't it? But enjoy your life take it to heart and enjoy it. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. And what I really love is the way that you said, make your singleness your power. I love that because it's so, yeah. it's, 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 that's, that's such great advice. Diane, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I've <laughs> absolutely loved talking to you. Where can people find you and follow you? Um, I am on Twitter. I'm, I'm hit and miss though on Twitter, I must say. And I am on Instagram. I'm hit and miss. My social media, and I, I am on Facebook. I'm a bit hit and miss all over the place. But anyway, I'm Diane Connell, DJ Connell, and you can kind of find me. <laughs> I'm also on uh, the, on Facebook as Julian Corkle as well, um, the, the name of my first book. so. Anyway. And what's, what's your website called? My website is uh, Diane Connell, I think, or DJ Connell author or something like that. I can't remember now. You know, I live in Vagueland, you know. <laughs> I will find out. And, and well, I, I already know I've already got them. So I'll put that in the show notes for anyone who, who wants to check you out. Um, thank you so much. It's been a complete pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Lucy. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Spinsterhood Reimagined. Would you consider leaving me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? Um, or a rating on Spotify. It doesn't take very long, but it means the absolute world to me. If there's any way that you could take the time to do that, that would be fabulous. If you love this podcast and if you've enjoyed one or more episodes, I would so, so, so appreciate it. Um, Follow me on Instagram at Spinsterhood Reimagined. You can always send me an email, lucy at lucymegason.com. And yes, I will see you guys back here for my Saturday mini-sode. But in the meantime, don't forget that one day I'm going to get Jennifer Aniston on this podcast. Yes, I bloody am. Have a great week. <laughs>